it's simple. If it's the right thing, just do it. I think everybody nowadays is looking for validation. You look at it on a macro level, right? People on social media, let me post and get a like because it gives me a, self, a, a sense of self-worth. Let me do this. And so for us, it really comes down to what's the opportunity or the gap? Where are we not serving athletes and how can we do that? And how do we set ourselves up for success to keep doing that over and over? And you know that if you're doing the right thing, that you shouldn't have to wait for somebody to give their blessing and say, oh yeah, that's a great idea, go do it. If you feel it's right and you know it's right, then just freaking do it. What is up everyone? I'm Katsan and you're listening to She Ready. For our first episode, which I am truly excited about by the way, we are joined by an amazing woman I've always looked up to since I was in high school. She is a Filipino-American, she is a former Division I softball athlete at the University of Arizona. She was also part of the Philippine national team, and she is an all-around girl boss, really, who is just getting started with continually updating how baseball and softball are being played, whilst advocating for equal opportunity for female athletes. Let's welcome our first guest on She Ready, Chelsea Speedos. Hey, Chelsea! Welcome to She Ready, and thank you so much for being our first guest and for being down to just share a little bit about yourself and about your life with us. Of course, yeah, thank you for having me. So you wear a lot of different hats every single day. You are a dog mom to Quinn, you are an aunt, you've got your full-time role at Nike, and you've also been working on a number of very exciting startups. But before we get started, how have you been? With everything that's gone on ever since the pandemic onset, I feel like I need to check in with myself week to week. So I would say this week, I'm doing really well. Thanks for asking. That's awesome. So let's dive right into it, if you don't mind. Of course. So you've had the opportunity to play Division One softball at Powerhouse Arizona, to play under and to be mentored by Coach Mike Andrea. You've also had the chance of a lifetime to join the Philippine national team and to represent the country at such big and prestigious tournaments. But before all these, how did your softball career first begin? I love this question. It's different for everybody. And for me, I, according to a lot of people, I started late. I started playing just rec softball at the age of nine. And it's funny because I have an older sister. And so um, she started playing softball at nine. And when I was younger, my parents gave me the opportunity to play sports and I said no to them. And then once I realized that my sister was having more friends than I did, I decided that I wanted to play. So it all kind of started. And I think that's when my competitive drive kicked in with my, with my older siblings, um, at about the age of nine. Oh my gosh, that's so cool. So back when you were younger, did you play other sports as well, or was it just softball? Yeah, I played everything. And I would even urge kids these days is play every sport. It's so good for you. Um, and just being a part of a team and team sports in general will help serve people in their lives in so many ways they would have never imagined. Years past, your playing days are over. So for me growing up, I played everything. I, I remember vividly my first introduction to sports when I was a kid. And it was playing out on the street with my dad. And actually, I learned how to play catch with him just by catching a football. So he would throw the ball as hard as he could right at my chest. 
And I can't tell you the amount of times I've had one of those pointy footballs hit me right in the chest. Um, and that was tell, teaching me a lesson early on that I needed to learn how to have good hands. And now that I think about it, every sport that I excelled at was hand-eye coordination, and I got to give my props to my dad. So I, I played, I learned how to play football in the court when I was younger. I also played hockey with rollerblades in, in the court with my dad and my sister. Um, and then in organized sports, I played soccer or global football, as it's known around the world. I played basketball, and then I also played softball as well. Oh my gosh, you played everything. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm telling you, I, I just love sports. And there, it was one of those things that just naturally came to me. And, and I love, I'm super competitive. So I just loved winning and I loved practicing. And I loved practicing because if you practice, it meant you won. And to me, it's just always been really fun to be a part of a team. I love that. Since here in the Philippines, a lot of student athletes tend to focus on one sport early on. Unlike in the U.S. or in the different international schools here, they tend to play different sports every season. So going back to what you said earlier about how you did just that growing up, was there any particular moment wherein you realized that you enjoyed playing softball and you wanted to focus solely on playing softball? Absolutely. The moment for me was... You know, I love. I know that Filipinos love the sport of basketball. Here in the states, being five four and three quarters, I wasn't tall enough uh, to play the position that I wanted. Because somebody of my size and stature, I I play like I'm six feet tall, but I'm not. And for me, I always wanted to shoot the ball. I didn't want to dribble the ball like a point guard. But knowing my size, that's what they were recruiting my position for. So. I had to have this tough moment when I wanted to pick a, a path within sports and which one I wanted to excel at and actually be really great at. Um, I had to make the choice to choose softball. And it because softball is one of those sports that it doesn't matter how big you are or how small you are. The playing field is truly level for everybody. And that's what I enjoyed so much about it. And so that was the moment where I decided to pursue softball a, a lot further. Um, which those benefits have definitely paid off in the long run. That's awesome. And you definitely got it right with mentioning how basketball is definitely one of the bigger sports here in the Philippines. But how was your experience like when you decided to solely focus on softball? It's a great question. It's competitive. Everything here in the States is competitive. And so for us, you, if you want to play in college, you start getting recruited in seventh grade. So you can only imagine what kind of decisions you need to start making at a really young age if you want to specialize in a sport and be really good at a sport. Do I condone that? And eh, not really, because I, I want everybody to have the opportunity to expose themselves as, to as many sports as they can possible. But for me, I started playing travel ball when I was 10. So if you think about it, I started playing softball at nine, picking up a bat and a ball for the first time. At the age of 10, I'm already playing competitively. And it's within those circles that rec ball here in the States doesn't really matter as much, and neither does high school ball, as it does for travel ball. So for me, you were trying to play with the best organizations, um, the organizations that would give you the most exposures to the top, top colleges. And for me, um, a lot of my friends were what they would call verbaling, where you make a verbal commitment to a college to say that you're going to go there based on an offer that they give you that's not in writing. So it's all verbaled. 
And a lot of my friends were verbaling at their freshman year in high school. And for me, I hadn't verbaled yet. So you can imagine the kind of comparison syndrome that that can send to a young kid at that point in time of, am I not good enough? Because everyone else is verbaling but me. And the funny story is, is I'm a hard worker. And so I don't shy away from having to roll up your sleeves and do the dirty work. And when it came to getting recruited, I was writing to over 100 universities every weekend saying, hey, this is who I am. I want to go to your school. This is what colors we're wearing. This is what my stats are. And I would put in that hours of work every weekend before going to a tournament. And the one school I didn't write to was the University of Arizona because I thought that because all my friends were verbaling and they were getting offers that there's no way that somebody like the University of Arizona would ever be interested in me. And so at that point, I'm writing letters, I'm writing letters, and we have this big travel ball national championship tournament that all these teams get invited to and you have to qualify for. And our team ended up being in that national championship game. And it was at that tournament where I was actually seen by Arizona. And when all the scouts are in the stands, the Floridas, the Alabamas, the Tennessees, the UCLA's, everybody is talking to each other and saying, hey, which kid are you here to see? And they all said, we're here for the Sweet Toasts kid. And it's funny because the coaches at Arizona said, that's funny. She hasn't written to us, not knowing that I had already counted myself out to them. And so what's funny is I ended up doing well. I got... Um, I got recruited to go on a visit there and that's where they offered it to me. So the whole point in this story is if there's anybody out there listening is it's never too late for there to be a chance for you to do something really great with your life. And don't ever count yourself out because nobody knows those superpowers or those values or the assets that you can bring to the table. And if you don't believe in yourself, who else is going to do it for you? I definitely agree with that. And my teammates and I actually do love watching NCAA softball. And if it wasn't Arizona, what were the other colleges that you were looking to potentially attending before? Yeah, my top schools actually were Alabama, Florida, and then uh, University of Arizona. So I was looking predominantly at schools in the SEC, and those were I was having offers. And um, Arizona came on late in the scene. And to be honest, the reason why I chose them was it came down to a couple things. So the United States is a very broad country. And, you know, you have on the East Coast, you have Florida, my whole family, my Lolo, my Lola, my entire family, they're on the West Coast. And so for me, I went on my visit to Florida. And the next weekend, I went on my visit to University of Arizona. And the, the scholarships both were matched. And what it came down to was family. And you know Filipinos and how important family is. And even though I, I'm a Filipino-American, everything that, my, my, that I've learned has been from my Lolo and Lola. And I wanted them to be able to have the opportunity to see me play. And knowing that they're older and that it's harder to travel, I didn't want it just to be through a television screen. So for me, by playing in the Pac-10 at the time or Pac-12, it was really important that every time that we played in the Bay Area against Cal and Stanford, my grandparents could come out and watch me play. I absolutely love how family ultimately played a big part in your decision to go to Arizona. And speaking of Arizona, I actually found a Pac-12 feature on you on YouTube, which I believe was done when you were in your senior year. And 
would it be okay with you to share with us the high school accident that had happened to you when you were younger and what role Coach Mike Andrea played in it? Forgive me if there's times where I don't really have the right words to say. I think in hindsight, it's been over 10 years since the accident has happened. And I'm grateful for good health. And I'm grateful that I was able to make a full recovery because that's not always the case with people that, that um, experience a traumatic brain injury. And so for me, essentially for the listeners that aren't aware, what had happened was um, high school sports aren't well-funded. Everybody knows that. And so baseball and softball are some of the most expensive sports to just get equipment for to take a step on the field. So basketball, you can kind of play in any shoes and pick up a ball anywhere and have a hoop and shoot. For us, you need your bat, you need your glove, you need your cleats. All those things can sometimes be $1,000 before you even step on the field. And then you talk about helmets and their their role in, in protecting the brain. And at that time, brain injuries weren't always talked about the way that they're talked about now in, in high contact sports like football or soccer and the repercussions of them. And so now that it, they've become more of a mainstream focus for researchers, we know a lot more now. But when this whole head injury happened, nobody really knew. And so I was there as a junior in high school. I think a junior in high school, I can't even remember. Um, I'm standing on third base and we're doing this play called a hit and run. So we have our, our biggest batter up in the three hole. I am wearing a helmet, though, that has been just sitting around in a shed that's been weathered. It's not the newest technology. It's just it's kind of like a foam padding. And that's it. That's all that was protecting my brain. And I ended up getting hit in the head. I, it's a split second reaction. So it's 60 feet between home plate and third base. And I've already taken off because I'm trying to steal home while our biggest batter up is hitting. And what people don't realize is that these balls come off the bat at over 90 miles an hour. So if you can imagine 12 inches of force hitting you in the head with a sub with just a little piece of foam, what ended up happening in the helmet is that it indented. And when it indented and popped out, it created this halo effect right around my temple. And it took time for the brain swelling to kick in. So I didn't realize at the time I thought I was fine. I score, I go home. And it wasn't until later on in the game that my coaches realized I'm not the same player. Because if you've ever watched me play, I'm always talking. I'm always talking. What's the strategy? What's the situation? I'm always thinking, what's the next play ahead? What could happen here? I wasn't doing that. And so my mom, being a nurse, they did just a couple questions. Hey, Chels, what's the date today? Hey, Chels, what do you have for lunch today? And the inability for me to answer such simple questions about me or what I'd done that day was quite alarming for them. So my mom, again, being a nurse, called the hospital that she worked at and ended up getting me a room. And again, because brain injuries weren't as prevalent at this point in time, it allowed my brain to swell. I remember my mom telling me that, you know, trying to stay awake in the car, I just kept passing out. And later that night, my brain had swollen so much um, that I needed to stay in the hospital. And so when I'd woken up, my speech was slurred, very much like that of a stroke patient. 
Um, I had brain fluid behind one of my eyes because that's how hard I got hit. I had behind my left eye and my memory was completely wiped. My speech was really slurred and it was hard for me to walk. It's like I had a limp. And now knowing everything I know now, because I do a bunch of research on head injuries, because I don't want what happened to me to happen to somebody else. And now knowing what I know, it's very much like a stroke victim. So part of my brain on the MRI, there's a part of dead brain matter that what people don't tell you at the time is that, yes, your brain has the ability to rewire. If you train it the right way, if you supply it with the proper nutrients, there's a lot you could do to maximize the power of that because that's the engine behind your body. And so for me at the time, I have no idea what's going on. I don't know who my family members are. I wake up in the hospital and I just know my mom and I don't really know much else of what the heck is happening. So over the next course of 10 days, I'm in the hospital, I'm in a traumatic brain injury unit um, and learning all the basics over and over again. I'm learning who my family members are and sometimes not even clicking in the hospital. This stuff is happening months and months and months down the road. I'm learning how to write my numbers again because they would come in and ask me what my pain was and I had the mentality of a two-year-old. I couldn't tell you what number came after two and what number came before 10. So I had to learn how to read. I had to learn how to write. I had to learn how to walk. And I remember just my dad walking me around the hallways and me having no idea who he is. It's just this guy taking me out for walks and I'm slow and the light's really bright in the hallways. And this was all part of my training to try and get back to life. But you could imagine as a 16-year-old, a 16-year-old with a full ride scholarship to one of the top powerhouses in Division I softball. So you asked about where Coach Candrea comes in all this. The story had had rippled through the entire softball community. And so he's calling my parents. He's calling my coaches because he's invested in me as one of his student athletes. You know, what is happening with her? Is she okay? And we didn't want to say anything because we feared of losing the scholarship. And we didn't know what the long-term repercussions of this injury would be and if I would ever recover, if I would ever play. And it was really important that on my official visit, once I had started recovering, that he said to me, you know, whatever happens with you, whether or not you play one game for me at the University of Arizona softball, I will always honor your scholarship and your education. I will find a way to make sure that you get what you need out of this university and I will be a father figure to you here. And I feel forever indebted to that man because everything that I've been able to do would not have happened if that man didn't have the heart and the character and the trust and the belief in me as a person and a player to set me up for success. So it was that decision by him that truly allowed me the ability to go on and play division one and be a wild card for him and go on to, um, you know, to get an education and to go on and represent all the athletes in the PAC 12 conference and to go on and work for Nike and try and level the playing field for female athletes. That man has truly been so impactful on my life, and I couldn't be more indebted to him. Chelsea, it's amazing to see how you've recovered through the years and how you've bounced back from it. 
And it's inspiring to hear about the trust and the belief that Coach Mike Candria had in you even before you became a Wildcat. And I wish him well. He's truly an amazing person based on what you've said and how he wholeheartedly honored his commitment for you to attend Arizona whether you played or not. So fast forward to your freshman year. How was your overall transition and experience like from playing high school ball and travel ball to college ball, wherein you're playing with a team that has a strong championship culture as seen by the eight NCAA softball championships? It's a great question. So there's a, a bunch of things, but if I was to narrow it down, the first one is the game's faster and the girls are a hell of a lot better. Um, the balls move much more out of the pitcher's hands. The hitters are better. The level of detail that each coach and program has on you before you even step a field or step a foot on the field as a, as a freshman is insane. Um, the other big difference is that it becomes, you know, travel ball where you see your teammates on the weekend and that's it. Um, or high school where you see them for a couple hours after school and that's it. It goes from that investment to you're seeing your teammates from 5.30 in the morning and living with them all the way until, you know, 7.30 or 9 at night because you're living with some of them. And so you can imagine as in any relationship, whether it's with your siblings or your parents that you live with or your significant other or your teammates, you have to learn how to get along with these people that it's inevitable because the season's going up and down, the stress of school and everything else happening in life is going up and down, yet it's all combined together. That was the toughest transition for me, I would say, um, because it's one that nobody prepares you for. And yet that's the one that teaches you the greatest life lessons of how to be a part of a team, how to be a good teammate, how to communicate with others and set expectations how to work towards one common vision, even though we all have different backgrounds and different opinions and beliefs, yet we got to find a way to all get on the same page and achieve the same goal. So those those were probably the biggest learnings for me going into college. I definitely agree. And I love how you mentioned the different life lessons that a student athlete who's competing in team sports is actually getting from it. And for our listeners who aren't so familiar with how college sports or college softball is like in the U.S., what's a day in the life like of college Chelsea? For me, I'm a morning person. It's no problem. 6.30 in the morning is what time you do weights. And so I would wake up at 5.30. I'd make a pot of coffee, just black. And then I would end up eating a slice of toast with peanut butter and, and honey. And that was it. Cause I needed something to eat before my workouts. I felt that was important and I still do. So then I would go over to our, our arena McHale center, and I would be there at 6am. I'd be in the locker room and all, everybody for the team meets by 620. Cause again, weights start at 630. So at 620, we are walking from our locker room to the weight room. At, at that time, we start rolling out, stretching. You're in there doing weights from 6.30 to 7.30, 7.45. And then I usually started class at either 8 or 9. So as you can imagine, you have, you know, 15 to 20 minutes, sometimes 30. Get dressed or change out of your stinky clothes. Get dressed. Go get breakfast. Your second breakfast, head to class. A lot of times class was from 9 to 11.50 or 12.50. Um, then you'd come back, you would eat lunch, maybe take a 15 minute nap. If you had the opportunity, practice starts at two. So we would be in the training room preparing for practice 
at, you know, 1, 1 1.30. And then we would be out at the field, you know, by 1.30, most likely, if practice was at 2 or 2.15, because if you're not early, you're late. So we were always there 30 to 45 minutes before practice, getting in some extra reps, um, standing in for for pitchers during their their bullpen sessions um, or or just taking extra cuts. And at that point, practice was from 2.15 to 5.30. After practice, you would go to the training room again, ice up your arm, go in the cold tub. That takes you till about 6, 6.15. And then you either had to hit study hall. Um, but because my grades were good enough, I ended up having, to, I got the ability to just go home. So I'm at home, you shower, you cook dinner, eat by seven, and then you study from seven to 8.30 and I'm in bed by nine. And I do it all over again the next day. Oh my goodness. That's crazy. Big respect to you for sure. Your days are so jam-packed with weights, school in between, practice for a majority of your afternoons, and the occasional travel for away games. But how are you able to still manage to take on internships throughout your stay in college? You find a way. You know, we all have the same amount of time in the day. And it's just how we choose to prioritize is the biggest part for me. What is important to you, you'll prioritize. If that is yourself, if that is your education, you'll prioritize it. If you don't prioritize it, you'll find a way to make an excuse for it. I hate excuses. So for me, it's all about time management and figuring out what's super important to me. And for me, I knew that a career after sports and me taking the onus to set myself up for success post playing career was really important to me. So I don't know. It's just time, time management and not, not finding an excuse, but more so finding the time. And I think as athletes, you just learn this innate way to take on a huge load of school academics and take on your sports and excel at all of it because there's something ingrained in us athletes that we hate failure. We hate losing. We hate being mediocre. And so it's that internal drive that just becomes a natural way of working. So honestly, I don't know any other way. And that's still how I am in everything that I do. I love how you were definitely real with it about how time management really is key. And I definitely resonate with what you've said about how back then you were very intentional with setting yourself up for success post softball and how that was truly important for you since that's something I value highly as well coming into my fifth year. And it's definitely admirable for sure how well-rounded you were in college. You had good grades. You played Division One softball, which is one of the highest levels of competition. You were able to intern with Nike and Arizona's athletic department back then. But given all these, was there ever a time wherein you had to sacrifice something? Yeah, I mean, to get to the biggest stage of Division One sports and being a student athlete, I sacrificed a lot of extracurriculars with friends. And would I go back and change it? No, because I know what I saw the vision of what I wanted. And I live strongly by non-negotiables. And so for me, being a division one athlete was a non-negotiable. It's not a choice. It's what I want to do. And so therefore, if it doesn't help me reach that goal, I don't, I don't entertain it. So I sacrificed 
a lot of homecoming dances and sleepovers with friends and those kind of things. And I would do it all over again because my my friends became my teammates um, and I loved every second with them. And every life lesson I've learned through sport, I'm not learning that from a sleepover with friends or from going to a homecoming dance. I'm making memories that are going to make me into the woman that I am today. And in hindsight, is the best decision I could have ever made. Absolutely. And I feel like this is a common sentiment that every student athlete faces, no matter what sport you're from. And at the end of the day, it's really about having a vision or a goal for yourself, figuring out how you will accomplish that goal and having the discipline to eliminate anything else that won't help you reach that goal. And through the years of you strongly living by this, you've had the opportunity to play Division One softball, and afterward, you were also able to represent the Philippine national team. So how did you first hear about the tryouts for the national team, and what made you try out? So I, end, I was playing um, softball growing up when I was 10 with a girl that ended up playing softball at UCLA. And I think Coach Anna had gone on some trip to the States, and I think she has relatives in Southern California or some sort of connections. And that's where she had connected with this player from UCLA and with the coaching staff. And that player, who's a good friend of mine from childhood playing days, had reached out to me in, in a cryptic message and said, hey, do you want to play for the Philippines national team? They're trying to qualify for Tokyo 2020. And at this point, it was a no-brainer. Absolutely. Why would I not want to? I think the thing for us that I had to learn was what are the qualifications for me to be able to be on a team, whether it's a tryout or simply make, you know, a, achieving a passport. And so I told you my whole family's from the Bay Area. And what ended up happening was my Lolo had come out here on the Navy and he brought my Lola out here as well. And when my dad was born in the States, they were both, my Lolo and Lola were both still citizens of, of the Philippines. They hadn't given up their citizenship or become naturalized yet. So therefore, my dad is a citizen, and therefore, I get the citizenship as well. And so we had to go through all the steps with the consulate in San Francisco to, main, or to apply for a passport. And that's when I started talking with Sir June and with Cheska and Coach Anna about, you know, trying out for the Philippines. And we'll bring this story back to Coach Candrea. A letter of recommendation was required for this. And he wrote me the most beautiful letter of recommendation to the team um, just for my consideration. And so that's kind of how everything happened. It's definitely amazing to hear how your story of first connecting with the national team intertwines with the relationships you've had through the years, such as your childhood friend who went to UCLA, Coach Mike Candria writing you the most beautiful letter of recommendation, and most importantly, your family. So... What did it mean for you to try out for the national team? It meant everything. And the question I always get is, why wouldn't you play for Team USA? And I'll just let you know how my family works. <laughs> so my, my dad is full Filipino. My mom is white and she's adopted. And so Filipinos, we know this, relationships and family mean everything to them. So nothing against my mom. I love her dearly. And she had an incredible um, set of adoptive parents that she also considers her, her parents. 
but the relationships with them was much different than the relationship with my grandparents. So every weekend we would drive to the barrier, which was about an hour. We'd sleep on my Lola and Lola's floor. You know, every morning was fried rice and longanisa and just every, and every single family event, you know, everybody lives within a mile of each other. And, you know, there's, probably a thousand of us just in an immediate family, which it's funny because my American friends, they see a picture of our Christmas and they're like, is that all just your family? It's like, yeah, that's all just my family. Um, so a long-winded story to say everything and every reason why I am the woman I am today was built upon the backbone of every life lesson and interaction that I learned from my Filipino grandparents. Everything from how to cook, I remember asking my Lola, hey, how do you cook? And so she we made pork adobo and she was teaching me, you know, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And this is my ratio. She never measured anything. And that's still how I cook. I just cook to taste. So um, that's one part of it. The other part of it is just how much family means to you. It's never about how much money you have or what materialistic items you have. It's, I will give you the last dollar in my pocket. I will give you the shirt off my back. Um, family first and always. And those, those are the values that I live my life by. And that's also how I treat other people that may not be blood family, but are my family. I genuinely loved hearing that from you. As for all of our listeners, I've been following Chelsea on Instagram since I was in high school. And it's definitely always been one of the things I admired about you the most, since you've always been very proud to be a Filipina. And the values that make up the person that you are today are rooted deeply in your Filipino identity. And going back to playing for the national team, You've done this whilst managing your full-time job at Nike, a place where you've worked at for five years. So how did it feel to manage both of these extremely important roles at the same time? So I've been at Nike for almost coming up on six years now, and I've been fortunate enough to have four jobs within that time frame. And for me, if you know me, you'll know that I operate from just out of honesty and respect for others. And so I, I'm also somebody that's fueled by passion and purpose. All these things are non-negotiables for everything I do, whether it's my personal life, my professional life, my whatever life it is. And so for me, it all started with um, my final game as an NCAA athlete. I remember that gut-wrenching feeling of losing. And I remember clinging to my jersey that was just covered in dirt almost as if it was a part of me that had just died. And I didn't have, I didn't, I didn't have the opportunity to, to have a say in when it was over. So that was a feeling that I always carried that was unresolved. So between that last game and my first job at Nike was a huge gap where I was struggling with my identity. I am now just some entry-level person in Nike corporate. And um, I kind of lost myself. And being somebody that's pretty aware of, you know, how I feel and where I operate from, that's when I think everything happens for a reason and the opportunity to play for the Philippines had come about. And so for me, my boss at the time also had a Filipino wife. So that made the conversation pretty easy when I said, hey, there's this opportunity 
that um, I can play overseas and, and represent the Philippines um, and try and punch my ticket to Tokyo, which has always been a dream of mine. I felt like I was forced to hang up my cleats. You know, I would love to figure out a creative solution for me to be able to still keep my job at Nike and go on and, and play, you know, internationally. And the first thing he said to me, I'll never forget was, um, you know, Nike is all about athletes and serving athletes and doing the right thing by athletes. He goes, don't worry about taking paid time off or any of those things with HR. We will figure that out for you. Go play. And no questions asked. And so the onus then was on me to do a good job at my job every day and to show up and build trust within my teammates at work. Um, trust and respect and accountability. So when I maintain those levels of trust and good relationships, they then know that no matter where I'm at, I will never let the ball drop. So for me, you know, each job that I had at Nike and I was still playing with the national team, it's almost like people understood the level at which I had operated and that I wasn't going to let them down. And, you know, it really just gave me the opportunity to go on and, and live out my dream and kind of decide for myself when I wanted to retire. But I will say the bittersweet part in all of this is that somebody like me playing with the best athletes in the world on global stages still has to work a full-time job. And I, I ask myself every night, you know, if I was just a dude, if I was a guy and I had different genitalia, life would be so different, but I'm not. So now what can I do to try and level that playing field? It's really nice to hear how your boss was really accommodating with you pursuing your dream to play for the national team as these are opportunities that you really don't get every single day. And it's amazing how Nike was able to embody their love for the game, their love for athletes in ways such as these, despite the massive differences when it comes to opportunities between male and female athletes and Ultimately, I'm I'm really excited for the impact you'll have on leveling the playing field for female athletes, championing women in sports, as it's something you've been very passionate about. So in line with Nike, Just Do It is definitely more than just a tagline or a slogan. And one of my good friends and one of our listeners, Helena, shout out to Helena, is actually curious to know how you and your team at Nike are able to incorporate or execute Just Do It when it comes to the different projects you guys have worked on or when it came to the different roles you've held. It's a great question. Thank you for your question, Helena. Um, it's simple. If it's the right thing, just do it. I think everybody nowadays is looking for validation. You look at it on a macro level, right? People on social media, let me post and get a like because it gives me a, self, a, a sense of self-worth. Let me do this. And so for us, it really comes down to what's the opportunity or the gap? Where are we not serving athletes and how can we do that? And how do we set ourselves up for success to keep doing that over and over? And you know that if you're doing the right thing, that you shouldn't have to wait for somebody to give their blessing and say, oh yeah, that's a great idea, go do it. If you feel it's right and you know it's right, then just freaking do it. You heard it, everyone, just freaking do it. So previously, you were the business lead for baseball and softball North America, 
And through the years, I've definitely seen how Nike's been a lot more intentional with providing a lot more apparel and footwear specifically for baseball and softball athletes. So could you tell me more about how Nike zoned in on Nike Diamond and how that came to be? Of course. So for me, I told you I operate out of purpose and passion. And I operate from a space of doing the right thing. And I will never take a job um, or do anything because it sounds cool or sexy or pays a certain dollar amount. Again, bring it back to purpose and passion for me because fakers can only fake for so long until you know the sun comes up and the light shows on who you really are and what your true colors represent. So for me, I was in, if Nike was a high school, I was in the coolest part of Nike. The part of Nike that has the biggest business and is always an area focus and it's high visibility to leadership. And for me, something was missing. And I knew that. So again, back to purpose and passion. I had this talk with my one of my mentors at the time and I said, hey, I'm thinking about going to this area that we called field sports, which is out of scope from rest of Nike. We kind of operate on an island because you're there to, to authenticate in sport. You're not there to make all the revenue the same way that, you know, a, a running would or a lifestyle would um, because your consumer target group is smaller. So for me in baseball and softball, you serve the kids from ages, you know, I say, you know, four to 18 years old. And after that, they're not buying. Whereas somebody in a lifestyle group, you can serve them their entire life. So for me, when it's not all about dollars, um, it really came down to leveling the playing field. So if you can remember back in 2017, things were, the world was shifting and shaking on a macro level. At this point in time, it was all about women's equality and the Me Too movement. And the first ever international women's march had happened. And this was the time where Nike internally was starting to reevaluate what our strategies are. And they said, hey, if women are majority of the population, women spend 51 cents on the dollar and we don't serve women the same way that we're serving our male consumers, we got a problem with that. So we need to, we need to fix that and start leading with her. So an opportunity came and they said, Chelsea, we want you to come over to field sports, which I was excited about. They said, we're going to give you a promotion. And we want you to do baseball and softball. Um, but what we really, really want you to do is help us build our women's business because it's kind of non-existent. It's not authentic. That We don't really have product, but we also don't know what we're doing. So we want you to use your athletic background insights and, and help the teams figure out where we're going. So for me, I had a couple opportunities I could have done. I could have gone in there and said, hey, this is what you need to do and what you need to do and what you need to do and we will be successful. But who likes being told what to do, right? <laughs> Nobody does. So what I ended up doing was I wanted to understand from everybody else who had already been in this area, what worked? What hasn't worked? Where do we want to go? What are our goals together? And we held, we held a very town hall-like meeting where it was three hours long and everybody was plugging in their computer as to who they thought this consumer was. Because we can't make product if we don't know who the heck it is that we're serving. So it started off with what are the non-negotiables and areas we must win in to make the best product? And then we'll go from there. So, you know, over the course of a year, it was bringing in our cross-functional partners in every step of the way. And why this was so critical to our success 
was because that's what allowed each person in their own respective function. I'm talking brand, sports marketing, product, product development, technical development, design, you name it. Every single partner that's going to have a hand in this product and strategy for them to be able to feel firsthand and contribute firsthand to the process because they're able to build it with you together. And the benefits of that is, is that they start getting emotionally connected and they won't let this ball drop. So for me, that was really important when leading the strategy and empowering those in their own respective pipelines to be able to do what they do, because I'm not the technical development expert. I can bring you the connections. I don't know what you do in your job on the day-to-day or how to do it. So why would I tell you what to do? And it was really this approach that allowed us to get the athlete insights we needed to create the partnerships and sign the, um, you know, the athletes that we did in our portfolio. And for us to truly do the right thing by the athlete for the athlete and fix ourselves internally before we went externally with this big campaign. So the result of all the work that we, we had done was, you know, besides taking points of market share in the high school space, we are almost at 50, 50% to 50% men's to women's in market share, whereas before it was under 30%. Um, so we gained area there. We also created apparel and footwear that was fit to the exact specifications of softball athletes. And why that's so important is because these athletes are competing. So any material or uniform or footwear getting in their way of performing at their highest level is going to cost them a game. It's going to cost them an out. It's going to cost them an at that. It's going to cost them something. And we didn't want to get in the way. We wanted to help propel them to their best performance. So for us, it was it was all about engineering it the, the correct way for them. And then the end output of it is we strengthen our relationships with the softball community. We strengthen our relationships with, with our wholesale partners. Um, and we authenticated ourselves overall as a, a brand that actually cares about women and women in sports. And like I said, when you do the right thing, the money will come. And the revenue that we were able to put up has over a thousand percented what we had done previously in just three months of business. So um, it's something that I'm really proud of, but again, I couldn't have done it on my own. And I have to give huge props to the team that believed in me to help lead them, that also went by their everyday job and committed to it and did right by and for the athletes to make this successful. So my teammates and I definitely loved the Nike softball merch when it first came out. And it's really cool to hear how you guys worked on it internally. So having been an athlete yourself, you know, went beyond providing female athletes with apparel and footwear that is engineered to specifically fit their build, how did you feel about providing young girls today with a brand that is also inclusive and authentic? I love this question, Kat. So inclusivity um, is really important to me on all fronts. Like I said, I operate from passion and purpose. And people cannot be their best selves or their most authentic selves if they don't feel like they are a part of something. And when you empower others and make them feel better about themselves, you will get a better end result. And the best way I can put this into an analogy is if I want if I want you on my team and you're a freshman, a lot of times freshmen don't always feel empowered to lead, yet you are on the field with the rest of the starting nine. So I need you to feel like you fit in um, because I know that if you're second guessing every decision you're making, 
you will feel the stress and what that does to you physiologically and psychologically, it's going to hinder your performance. So for me, it's not that I'm just sparkling glitter all over you. It's for me to tell you, you're on this team for a reason. I picked you for a reason. Now go do it. Do what you do best and don't let anything hold you back. And when you flip that script of, hey, you don't belong here too. You do belong here. You give the people the freedom to make the best decisions possible for the group without having to second guess and take away their gut instinct from things. So on a macro level, when you ask about bringing this brand, I think what people expect is that if I play a sport, Nike is sport. So Nike should do my sport. And when there's that disconnect in authenticity or just not being there within the sport, um, it creates disappointment for a community. And when our consumers and athletes are disappointed, they no longer want to be associated with us. And so for me, it was really important because it's the brand that I believe in and everything that we do. I want to bring belief to everybody else that comes into contact with our brand. I really appreciate how you mentioned that people can't be their best selves if they feel that they are part of something as it's something that definitely goes beyond sports. May it be in school, may it be in your relationships with family and friends, work. So I really loved how you mentioned that and how much you value inclusivity as it really shows in your passion and determination towards continually championing for women in sports and providing equal opportunity for female athletes as a whole. So as you wrap up, you've had tremendous impact and massive success within Arizona, the national team, Nike, the numerous startups you're currently working on. So how has your definition of success back when you were in college evolved through the years up until the person that you are right now? So success for me is a lot different. Um, I will first start by saying is the old way I used to think about how to succeed was putting a number out there and then going to try and find a way to achieve it. I will say a lot of businesses operate this way is here's the revenue target, go hit it. And that's not always the best way. It works for some, but not for others. And I felt like for me, that didn't work. So if you think about, I say, I'm never going to take a job for the money. Because at some point, the things to get there, to get that money, may not match back with what is truly authentic to me. So for me, let's say for softball, it was I need to hit 330, a batting average of 330. Well, I noticed every week I was overanalyzing. I didn't hit it. Oh, I failed this. Oh, I did that. And while sometimes it's good to be aware of of the areas that you have shortcomings in so you can prescribe a way to be better, a lot of times it can create unnecessary stress that that you don't need as a player because you have the physical talents to do it. Just go do it. And so for me, now the way that I, I look at success is in the moment decision making. Let's have a plan. I'm a planner. I like to think strategically about the future. So let's put a plan together of what we know right now and what we know right now How is that going to get us to what our goal is? And in between, we will figure out the way to get there. And you know what? It's going to be okay that sometimes we need to be flexible because things change and life happens. 
So for me, that's the way that I now look at success. And it's more in a hindsight thing. I'm not going out there just to say, hey, I want to be the most successful person. It's how can I do the most things from my heart and my passions and my purpose to then do the right thing and the success will then come. How you define success as in the moment decision making and how success is more of a hindsight matter is definitely unique and fresh take on how you view success today. And to build up on what you've mentioned about hindsight and looking back, what would be some things that you would thank your past self for? Thanking my past self. I would say I would thank my past self for allowing myself to fail. Um, I would thank myself for just sitting in the failure for a second and trying to figure it out. Um, maybe equating it to jumping in the deep end of failure and not letting yourself drown. I would thank myself for being open to that. I would also thank myself for being open to feedback and always viewing feedback as a gift from others because if I don't know what I'm doing wrong, yet you had the opportunity, the courage and the strength to tell me how I can be better, then that to me is not a threat. You are then helping me. And I think from an early age, that's what I learned is going to help you survive in this world is to just take feedback and take it openly. And when people don't want to give it because it's hard to give, ask for it. So I, it's all the feedback that's also led me to where I'm at today. I loved how you focused on overcoming adversity and asking for feedback as whether you are an athlete or a professional, these will be things that you, you'll be coming across every single day. And I love how you dug deep into it. And as we're down to our last question, you've always been a go-getter. You are constantly driven by passion and purpose and you aren't afraid of a challenge. So what is next for Chelsea Sweetos and where do you see yourself at? Next in sport for Chelsea Sweetos could be a multitude of things. I don't want to limit myself, but I will say um, my biggest passion that's always been is leveling the playing field for athletes. And so whether I can do that at a corporate level or whether I can do that on a personal level, I'm being able to bring together a group of like-minded people that also want to be allies to help level the playing field for athletes and specifically female athletes and get them to the point where they can be for profit. That to me is, is where I see my future, where that is. Maybe we'll find out next time we chat. Big, big thank you for listening to our episode with Chelsea. And don't forget to follow She Ready on Instagram at She Ready the Podcast. And feel free to tag me with things you've loved about this episode. Once again, I'm Kat San, and see you next week for another episode drop. Peace out. Peace out.